On your marks, get set, go! Too close to paradise And too close to hell And sometimes the difference Is too hard to tell With empty pockets And old worn-out seats They say you feel them by riding your dreams And I'm one step closer now Hello and welcome to Slycast, the Sylvester Stallone fan podcast. I'm Craig Cohen, and as always, I have with me Jeff Ferry. I didn't join the police force to kill people. <laughs> and Jeff Hewlett. Feeling a little too close to paradise tonight, boys. <laughs> so guys, this is an episode that when we started putting together the agenda for this series, this was an episode that I was really, really looking forward to. So... On the last episode, we looked at Rocky and Rocky Two, um, Rocky from 76 and Rocky Two from 79. And what we're going to do this episode is fill in the gaps from 76 to 81. So we've got some really interesting movies to talk about. We're going to talk about Fist, Paradise Alley, uh, Victory, and Nighthawks. Now, the reason I'm really looking forward to this episode is I think... This is a really, really interesting time in Stallone's career. It was kind of before he really blew up as the action star that a lot of people think of him as today. And he was doing movies that a lot of people probably, uh, if you stopped him on the street today, wouldn't expect him to do. Now, do either one of you guys have any thoughts or feelings about this time in Stallone's career, um, Jeff Ferry. Yeah, like you said, it's a really interesting uh, period. He's got, out of the four films, three of them are period pieces. I yeah. think they take place to one in the 30s, two in the 40s, I believe it is, or maybe two in the 30s, one in the 40s. Mm-hmm. And like you said, like if I ask somebody, hey, name every Sylvester Stallone movie you, you know, I doubt most people would mention any of these four. Uh, they kind of, yeah, they fall out of, like, they're in that rocky time frame. And they're just completely overshadowed by Rocky. Yeah, it's it's funny. Um, out of all these movies, the only one I had probably seen somewhat close to release, and, and we're talking probably five or six years within release, was Nighthawks. Paradise Alley and Victory were both movies that I've watched for the first time that I can remember within the last five years. And Fist was the first time I watched this movie was for this recording. Um Jeff Hewlett, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I think this, like you said, it was it's an interesting period in his career because you kind of get to see where he could have gone. You know, we we know the Stallone we see today is pretty much uh, relegated to, to action movies for the most part, but it, he has some some serious acting chops in these serious dramatic roles that he's in in these movies, uh, especially I think in uh, Paradise Alley. And victory, you kind of see him in a a really different light. Uh, Nighthawks, he, he's kind of starting to get into more of that Stallone that we know and love today. But 
I like to to think about you know what what his career could have been like if he decided to continue on these um you know dramatic period piece type films. Yeah, and and the one thing I was thinking about was I was looking at his career from you know the perspective that you would look at any career, and you know in your life you have what are called your your peak earning years. Those are the years where you're going to make the most money that you're ever going to make in your life. So, you know, you sort of look at, you know, your Rocky threes through your demolition man as Stallone's peak years, where those were the years where he was uh, really had the ability to make a lot of money. And if you look at it, or at least when I look at it that way, it kind of makes his career, uh, it puts it into focus and it, and it, it makes complete sense, uh, you know, some of the choices that he made. Um, not that you need to really apologize for any of those choices, uh, although I'm sure Stallone would, but, but, uh, <laughs> but that's not to get into uh, today. But um, I, I thought that was really interesting. And, and before we really roll our sleeves up and get into this, I just wanted to mention a couple of other podcasts out there that have really sort of uh, carried the flag for us, uh, either on Twitter uh, or other social media, and I, I just want to give them a, a mention because I know um, they listen and and they've supported us with encouraging words as well as a, a retweet here and there. And the first one is a podcast called '80s Picture House, and these guys do a phenomenal show. Based on the name, they're dealing with stuff from the 1980s, and they do interviews and they also cover you know movies. And they're big, big Stallone fans. And the other one I want to talk about is the Midnight Movie Cowboys. Um, and that's another really interesting show. And those guys get into some, uh, some movies that you normally wouldn't hear uh, a podcast talking about. And they, they approach them from a very, very uh, intelligent point of view. So if you're looking for some new podcasts to check out, please check out the 80s Picture House and the Midnight Movie Cowboys, and uh, I'm sure I'll link to them uh, in these show notes, and then also on Twitter, I'll, I'll send out any Twitter handles. But uh, thank you guys, because um, it's really great, the feedback we've been getting. We love seeing iTunes reviews. Uh, it, it really makes us feel uh, like we're part of a bigger community of people that really, really love the movies of Sylvester Stallone. So, uh, and with that, I guess we'll, we'll jump into things. So I said that we were going to be looking at 76 to 81 and some people listening might say, well, the only movie he did in 1976 was Rocky, but there is a, uh, an uncredited cameo in the Roger Corman production cannonball, which was a cross country road race movie before the cannonball run that we all know and love. And in this scene, he plays uh, what is credited as, I believe, a mafioso. And also in the scene is Martin Scorsese. And they're talking to uh, director Paul Bartel, who is concerned that he's put on weight. I know you guys both had a chance to sit down and watch the scene. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch the whole movie. Um, do you have any takeaway from this scene, uh, Jeff Hewlett? Yeah, I, I I like the fact that Stallone is kind of sitting there chomping on some chicken, and his comment was something to the effect of, uh, "You're a you're a good looking fat." Or yeah, was it something close to that. 
Yeah, like you know, basically telling the guy he carries his weight well. That's right, right, right. Yeah. Jeff Ferry. Am I the only one that thought he looked a lot like Elvis in that uh, <laughs> outfit? He's sitting there yeah, eating yeah, a bucket point. of fried chicken. He's got the big glasses on. He's got like a 70s, almost an Elvis suit on. It just – that's all I could think the whole time he was talking. Yeah, now that you mention it, uh, I, I totally see that. And that's a movie that um, I – I'll watch any Roger Corman movie from the 70s. Um, so that's one I'm definitely going to keep my eye out next time I'm on Amazon and I have to add a couple more things to my cart, you know, uh, to make it like Christmas here. Um, I will definitely uh, add that to my cart because that looks like a really fun movie. And I'm really surprised that I haven't seen it based on my love of Death Race 2000, which is, you know, another cross country road race movie. So um, that would probably be the the last sort of cameo role from Stallone for a while. He'll pop up in, in, in cameo roles a, a couple more times during this series. But, uh, you know, this was one of those things where I, I think this was his last favor for, uh, <laughs> for, for Corman. Um, but it looks like a lot of fun. Um, and then we're going to jump into Fist, um, which is uh, F period, I period, S period, T period, which stands for the Federation of Interstate Truckers. And basically what this is, is a fictionalized account of the life of Jimmy Hoffa. Jeff Ferry, do you have anything you want to add about the setup of this movie? Yeah, well, like you said, it's a uh, it's basically the rise and fall of a union leader. I mean, he starts out, he's he's very small time, he's small town, it's going to lead him on his way. I mean, it's not a... It's not something you've never seen before, but uh, I had never seen Fist before. And I, I used to confuse it with Nighthawks, to be honest with you. I used to get the Fist mixed up with the Attack was the name of the Attack unit, yeah. Nighthawks. Yeah. And I guess just because they're both four letters, I thought it was the same movie. Yeah, and <laughs> one of the surprising things about this movie for me was that it jumps through uh, time periods. It basically starts in 1937. But it jumps all the way to the late 50s um, and gets sort of into the Teamsters providing loans from the pension fund. And you get some really great sort of aged makeup on on all of the actors. And we see quite a few of Stallone's um, peers that he would work with down the line. Um, We have uh, Brian Dennehy. And um, who else am I thinking of um, that pops up in another movie? Well, Kevin Conway's in it, and he's yeah, in Paradise and Alley. He's in Paradise Alley. Yeah. Um, you also have a great performance from from Peter Boyle, and you have a score from Bill Conti, who scored three of the four movies that we're talking about tonight. So um, it's kind of interesting that that Stallone, you know, carried Conte with him. Uh, for quite a few of his films. And it really, this felt like sort of Stallone was building his own crew. Um, Even though this wasn't a Stallone film, it was directed by, you know, legendary director Norman Jewison. But this really felt like a Stallone film to me. Is that something that you sort of took away from it, Jeff? Uh, Yeah. I also feel like um, if you watch Fist and Paradise Alley back to back, Mm -hmm. 
it seems like they finished filming Fist and were like, hey, do you guys want to go film, you know, film another movie with the same guys and some of the same sets? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll, just, we'll, we'll put a different hat on uh, on Kevin and then, you know, we'll give him a different mustache and we'll be good. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. This uh, also has an interesting pedigree in terms of the writing. Now, Joe Esterhaas is uh, credited with the story. And Esterhaas and Stallone are credited with the screenplay. Now, all reports I've read say that the two of them really didn't get along during filming. And I don't know how true or untrue that is. But the one funny thing I I thought watching this movie was that Stallone's character is a guy named Johnny Kovac. And he's Hungarian, which is, you know, Joe Esterhaas is Hungarian. And there's even a scene in the movie where Stallone speaks Hungarian, and it's deep into the movie. So when the guy asks him, asks him if he's Hungarian, and Stallone says, yeah, it kind of came out of left field for me, and it seemed like <laughs> it was funny that they, they wouldn't have altered that, or if it was just like, hey, sure, Stallone can be Hungarian. And, you know, I haven't met a lot of Hungarian people, and, and I guess, but it's just, you know, Stallone's coming off of a character called the Italian Stallion. It just seemed... Like, that would be an easy fix in the script. So that was something I sort of got a kick out of. And um, this is a movie that I would definitely, definitely recommend people watch if they've held off on it or if, you know, it's just one of those movies in Stallone's catalog that they haven't seen. Because it really, uh, you know, it plays like one of those 70s dramas. And, you know, not to compare it at all, in terms of the level of filmmaking that it achieved, but it kind of felt like, you know, maybe the Godfather two notched back a couple of levels because especially when it shifted to, um, you know, the late fifties, is that something that you noticed Jeff Ferry? Oh yeah. The, the uh, especially I was going to say the same thing. The second half of the movie is very reminiscent of Godfather two. Yeah. It's got the Senate hearings. I mean, very similar things going on. I can't say enough that this movie is very underrated. Like I've never, no one ever mentions it. I was pleasantly surprised when I watched it. I was like, aside from being maybe 20 minutes too long, like yeah. maybe they could have spent a little time in the editing room and a little of that, uh, some of the old age makeup's a little dodgy towards the end. Yeah. When, you know, you got 25 year old guys and they're trying to make them look like they're in their fifties. Yeah. And they kind of got that red look going on. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, brilliantly acted. I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I was really surprised. I thought it was going to be a tough watch, and it really wasn't. Yeah, well, it's it's funny. I, you know, I I got the 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 disc in the mail, and I looked at the back, and I saw it was two hours and twenty five minutes. And I sit down to watch it, and I'm like, wow, it's going to be two hours and twenty five minutes. And you know, there's a point where the union's pretty much up and running, and I'm like, well, what are they going to do for the next hour and forty minutes? Um, and then you know, and then it it shifts at whatever point it shifts, and I was like, wow, you know, this is almost like a getting a little, you know, taking a shot of, uh, you know, you know, five hour energy or something. It, it really sort of, uh, you know, kicks the film into high gear. Um, and, 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 you know, really, really, uh, at least got me invested a lot. Now, one little bit of trivia, um, is if you watch those scenes in the, um, the late fifties, Stallone's, uh, Johnny Kovac is married to the mother from a Christmas story, <laughs> uh, Melinda Dillon. But he's got two kids, one of whom is Anthony Kiedis from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wow. <laughs> That's some deep trivia. Yeah, going uh, under a different name, Cole Dammit. 
is the name that he was credited as. I guess <laughs> as a child actor, he used a different name. But uh, and I think that was pretty much all I really wanted to hit on this movie. And um, I don't really want to spoil the ending for people who haven't seen it. But this is a very, very unique Stallone ending because it's the type of ending we don't normally get in a Stallone movie during his early to prime years. So um, with that, we're going to move on to Paradise Alley from 1978. It came out in September of that year. And we've mentioned this film already in terms of how it's, it's a period piece and it takes place in 1946. And it's about three brothers, um, Stallone, who plays Cosmo, and then we've got Armand Asante, who plays Lenny, who we saw uh, in a cameo appearance in The Lords of Flatbush. And then we've got Lee Canalito as Victor. And it's basically three brothers hustling their way through life in the 1940s Hell's Kitchen. And it's a pro wrestling movie. <laughs> Jeff Hewlett, um, what were your initial feelings of this movie the first time that you sat down to watch it? Well, the first time I sat down to watch this movie was actually to prime up for this show. I had never seen it before. So, you know, I sat down to watch it. Fortunately, the whole movie is actually on YouTube. So uh, if anybody out there is looking to see it, you can just search for uh, Stallone Paradise Alley on YouTube and you can watch the whole thing. I think it's like an hour and 47 minutes or so. Yeah. And it's also it's also on Netflix for for those of you out there with Netflix accounts. So my, when I sat down to watch it, I think I got through like the first half hour of it. And I was thinking to myself, like, I, I wasn't sure where the movie was actually going. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm trying to figure out the angle. I'm like, you know, I loved what Stallone was doing in the beginning. He's kind of like that that lovable hustler kind of guy. And he's got that that he's trying to, uh, to to move up on that girl on the street. And he's got the pigeon crap on his shoulder. <laughs> that was really it, a lot of really good laughs in that that beginning piece there. And but once the movie started to kick in and you started to figure out what was really going on and, and the characters started to really develop and the two brothers, you know, Stallone and um Asante kind of switch places in the movie, if you will. Yeah. They kind of turn into each other in a way. Yeah, we'll talk. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll that. talk more through it. But w when I finished the movie, I I, just, I remember thinking to myself, I really love this movie. I can't believe I've never seen this before. Yeah. It is really, really well done. Yeah, awesome. And I'm actually going to have some comments from a current big screen director who loves this movie. Um, but before that, and before we get into the movie, um, Jeff Ferry, uh, initial feelings on 1978's Paradise Alley. So the movie begins, and we have a slow motion race over oh. the rooftops. Yes, with rat face. To, you know, the vocal stylings of Sylvester Stallone. Oh, yes, too close to paradise. Right there. I'm watching it at home, and uh, I was like, the two minutes <laughs> – the first two minutes of that movie, I'm like, oh, man, this could be a long two hours. <laughs> uh, I was like, you had said something about it. And as soon as it started coming on, I'm like, somewhere Craig is laughing at me right now <laughs> as I'm trying to get through this. It's I like I got to say, I really dislike the first scene. I think it it's a detriment to the movie because everything after that I loved. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
I didn't remember any of it until I won't, you know, give away the end, but the kind of the big ending scene, the big 10 minutes at the end. Yeah. Was familiar to me. I must have seen it at some point in VHS and not realized what it was. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I mean, he's, this is a more of the, the Stallone. Yeah. This is like the Stallone wise guy, wise cracking, you know, smart mouth, funny guy type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's funny. You mentioned that your, your, your solid memories of it were the last 10 minutes. And I'd imagine any kid watching this in the eighties um, on VHS or on HBO or whatever, that would be the portion of the movie that they responded to. <laughs> But um, the one thing that I really liked about this was Stallone isn't the physical imposing character in this movie. That role is played by Lee Canalito, who plays the brother Victor. And I thought between this and Nighthawks, it was really interesting to see Stallone not sort of cash in on his physical presence, even coming off of Rocky, where he played, you know, a tough boxer in this movie. There was really no indication that he was very physical at all. And I thought that was kind of a neat choice because I'd imagine there might have been people who read the script and just assumed that he would play the role of Victor. Any of you guys have any feelings on that? Um, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, actually, if I'm not mistaken, there's a scene in the movie where uh, he's trying to convince uh, Victor to do his initial wrestling match, right? And Victor says something to the effect of, why don't you do it? And Stallone actually refuses the chance to fight. Yeah. And he says, you know, I'm not the physical kind of guy, right? So it's almost like something you would expect Stallone to just be like, okay, jump in the ring and 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 do it. Because you see him at the beginning of the movie, he's jumping from rooftop to rooftop. So he's kind of got a daring side to him. He's willing to take risks that, you know, he could get hurt doing. Yeah. But then again, he doesn't, he doesn't want to do the arm wrestling thing. And he doesn't want to actually get into a, a physical brawl with an, a wrestler. So it, it just seemed kind of like a what you wouldn't expect from mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Jeff Ferry. Oh, I agree completely. I, I mean, it, I don't see – it couldn't have really worked with him because, I mean, that Lee Canalito is just like – that guy is a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even standing next to Terry Funk, he's shoulder to shoulder with him. Mm-hmm. And then they have uh, Frank McRae's in it. He's another – he's a house. Yeah. I mean, those are big guys. And as we'll see later in, you know, some of the upcoming Rocky movies, Stallone is, you know, while he's physically imposing to the average person, you know, he's just not tall. Yeah, but but I thought that was kind of a, a cool role reversal because it's not something, re, you know, a lot of or at least I know I'm not used to seeing Stallone do. Um, so I thought that was really neat. And you mentioned Terry Funk, who plays the uh i guess the the main villain um from a physical standpoint uh he's basically working for kevin conway's stitch but um terry funk is a legendary wrestler and this is really um a great it's a meaty performance i mean funk really has some stuff to do here which i i think is really neat especially if you're a fan of a guy like terry funk it's really cool to see him you know, acting, I, you know, he'd pop up, you know, again in like Roadhouse. But this really felt like a big role. And he really has to carry things at the end of the movie, you know, because it is a big wrestling scene. Um, and of course, you also mentioned Frank McRae, um, who plays Big Glory, who we also saw in Fist, which sort of carries over that whole Stallone crew thing for me, uh, watching these together. 
Another really cool cameo we get is another person we've seen in a couple of Stallone movies already. Um, and this might be his most prominent role, but that's Frank Stallone playing the lounge singer, which uh, I always love seeing Frank on film. So the other cool thing here is, um, and Hewlett, you uh, alluded to it, that the movie in the, at the start, Armand Asante's Lenny character is really reluctant for Victor the Leo Canalito character to do anything physical, um, even though Cosmo's sort of pushing him in that direction. And Victor is, he's what delivering ice and uh, in hopes of saving up enough money to move to Jersey on a houseboat with his um, Chinese girlfriend, Susan and Cosmo Stallone's Cosmo being the, the hustler that he is, is always looking for a way to make easy money. And, what easier way to make money than putting your uh, physically dominating brother to work in uh, an arm wrestling match or a, a wrestling ring? And I thought it was really funny um, to see uh, an arm wrestling scene because we have a whole movie we're going to talk about probably a couple of episodes from now uh, over the top that deals with arm wrestling. So uh, it's really cool when you look at all of the sort of combat sports that uh, that Stallone's captured in his movies and in this one we have arm wrestling and wrestling in general but to get back to the relationship between Lenny and Cosmo um, as Jeff Hewlett alluded to by the end of the movie Stallone is seeing or Cosmo is seeing the toll that the wrestling matches are taking on Victor and he wants Victor to quit and at that point Lenny has become so corrupted by uh, the money that they're making that he loses focus on what he believed. Uh, do either one of you want to elaborate on that? Um, I guess since uh, you originally pointed it out, Jeff Hewlett, um, how about you? Yeah, I, it was one of those things that kind of caught me a little bit off guard because they take a lot of time. And when I say a lot of time, I mean a lot of time yeah. establishing the juxtaposition between the two characters, between Lenny and Cosmo. And it, you know, the first you know half hour, 40 minutes of the movie almost uh, are are the two of them kind of almost like in this tug of war over you know being one being really protective over Victor and the other wanting to kind of exploit him? I mean, you mentioned the arm wrestling scene, and the arm wrestling scene pretty much is nothing more than Cosmo Stallone's character wanting to use his brother to get a hold of an organ grinder's monkey so that he can <laughs> make money on the street, right? Yes. So he's yes. bets he bets a hundred dollars that he doesn't have against this organ grinder's monkey that these mafioso guys or these you know these these sharks have gotten, and he doesn't have the money that and he's you know kind of just assuming his brother's going to win, and you get that funny scene later with him on the street with the monkey, but yeah, you know when when they switched kind of switched roles at the end, I think both of them really did a good job of, uh, you know, you, you felt like Stallone grew a bit from his, from the earlier in the movie. Cause he's really kind of like, uh, really a scam artist, really kind of just looking for any way to make a buck. And, you know, Lenny's making a quote unquote honest living in a mortuary, but then, you know, Lenny's pretty much kind of living on the money that Victor has and, and going so far as to just kind of try to hide the finances from Victor when he asks about where's my money or what's going on with the money. He's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'm taking care of everything. So you get this feeling that he's kind of gotten so uh, gone so far and let the money go to his head so much. 
And whereas Stallone was the one that was obsessed with money all through the picture, it was really kind of shocking that they went that way. This movie really, when I think about it, really kind of surprised me a lot. Mm -hmm. There were things that I expected to happen that didn't happen. And it really led me in a different direction than I had expected out of it. Yeah, and and one of the cool left turns is the the woman character in the movie uh, played by Ann Archer. She plays Annie, and that's the woman that Cosmo is kind of courting. And there's a point in the movie where we learn that she used to date Lenny, and she started dating Lenny again, which really, really gets Stallone angry. And Stallone has a um, a girl who's really interested in him, and he's not really interested in her so much. But there's a great scene between um, Lenny and Cosmo where uh, – or it might even be between um, Cosmo and Annie where – or it might even be both characters he says that to. But he indicates to them that he's sensitive. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is really a good indication of that character's true nature and the fact that Cosmo might have been putting up um, an incredible smokescreen to hide, you know, what a sensitive person he was. Um, Jeff Ferry, any thoughts or feelings to add? Well, yeah, they, they go out of their way to say that Lenny suffered a, some sort of injury in the war. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have really warped him. He, he must have some sort of, you know, he's got a physical injury and looks like he's got some sort of, you know, PTSD type thing going on. Sure. I'm wondering if prior to that, if he was the alpha brother of this group. Oh, that's, he, that's yeah. He was the one that was in charge. So when he falls to the wayside, He's not with Annie anymore, and he's just kind of traipsing through life, not doing much. Cosmo's like put out front and center because obviously Victor's not going to do it. He's just, you know, he's like a sweet, sensitive giant, and he's not going to do anything. And I don't think Cosmo ever really, he's never really ready for that. He, I mean, he's a wisecracking hustler type, but he, he's not meant to be the leader of that. So when he's telling people, I'm sensitive, he's serious yeah. and he's insecure. Mm hmm. That's what his whole front's about. He can put on a front to, you know, all the clowns at the bar, you know, literally a clown at the one bar (laughs) and he, uh, but not to his brothers, like, and to the girl, like, Hey, listen, you know, I'm sensitive. He's got to let them know I'm sensitive. Yeah. That's a, a, uh, an excellent analysis and it's not something I had really thought too much about, but, um, that is, that is a really, really great observation. So We've got some really interesting characters in this movie. We've already talked about Kevin Conway and Terry Funk. And you mentioned the clown, uh, Jeff Ferry. And that is played by Joe Spinell, who we've seen before and we will see later. But a lot of people know him as the loan shark that Rocky works for in Rocky. And I guess, what, Rocky II, they're, they're friends at that point. Yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I didn't really remember Spinell being in this movie um, because when I had watched Paradise Alley a couple years ago for the first time, I hadn't seen Rocky in, in, in probably quite a few years. And I just didn't make that connection. Also, considering that he was in clown makeup most of this movie. <laughs> um, but that's one of the really great things that I've sort of loved about doing these Stallone deep dives. Where, you know, for this episode, we had four movies to prep for. And, you know, I watched them all in very, very close proximity to each other because I wanted to be, you know, sort of fresh on them for this episode. So you notice things like that. Not to say that you wouldn't notice it, but it really sort of brings to the surface that there were guys that 
either went out to a you know went out to a lot of the same casting calls or were guys that Stallone really really liked working with and this was a movie that Stallone wrote and directed so it seems like he had a lot of input into you know the the behind the scenes uh going on in this movie so it, it is kind of neat and like I I sort of mentioned during Fist it's really cool to see these faces that you're going to see um in other movies and you've also got Tom Waits, who plays Mumbles, the singer Tom Waits, who will not appear in another Stallone movie, sadly. But uh, Mumbles was like a, a piano player who sort of does like this. Only way I can explain it is he's got like this Heath Ledger Joker thing going on with the way he talks. Did any, <laughs> either one of you guys pick that up? I mean, he definitely earned his name because he was talking <laughs> and I'm like, what? I don't what are you talking about? Like, I, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So the one of the things that I, I I really liked about this movie is the fact that it took place in the the late 40s and was filmed in the late 70s was their approach to professional wrestling. And I'm not going to sort of assume what Stallone knew about the business at that time, but there was a period within our lifetime where professional wrestling was looked at as a legitimate competitive sport. And you guys both know that I'm a big wrestling fan. I, I do an, a wrestling podcast with uh, with Guy Hutchinson called Camel Clutch Cinema, where we talk about movies that have wrestlers in them or, or have plots involving wrestling. So, uh, you know, I, I don't say that with any kind of malice, but, you know, wrestling has now changed to what is, you know, what they're calling sports entertainment, where these athletes are taking legitimate risks with their bodies, but we all sort of know and and uh, accept that the outcomes are predetermined, and you're watching it more like um, you'd watch a TV show or a movie. Um, so the, the the interesting thing about watching this movie was obviously in the 1940s, a lot of people watching wrestling assumed that what they were watching was real. And that's the version of professional wrestling that this movie puts forward. So basically the idea for this uh, to get Lenny into the ring occurs when uh, Cosmo and Lenny sort of what work their way into this like this speakeasy joint. Um, what do they go to the door and they and they say the, um, that Mario sent them because friend uh, of Mario's. Yeah. yeah. And Everybody knows Mario. So many Mario. Exactly. <laughs> um, and they see Frank McRae's big glory. Um, he, he's basically what uh, taking on any comers. If you can stay in the ring with him, um, you'll get a hundred dollars. Yep. So uh, that's where Cosmo gets the great idea to to get Victor involved. And after some hemming and hawing and and fighting, and ultimately for Lenny the the lure of money, he he does wrestle. And that first match between Lenny and Big Glory is is really great because. It almost seems like Lenny wasn't expecting it to be as physical as it turned out. And and once it does get physical and he gets knocked out of the ring and he works his ba- way back in, he sort of figures out what he's supposed to do. And from there on, um, all bets are off. And he and he uses this move called the, the Ice Clamp, which yep. is a very, very Stallone-like um, name and move, um, which is basically uh, you grip the guy um, over each – over his collarbone basically and just press really hard 
So I, I really, really liked that first match. Um, and he also gets the nickname Kid Salami at that point, and he comes to the ring with Salamis dangling over him. Do you guys have any general thoughts about the initial match that uh, Lenny has with Big Glory and any of the other matches we see before the end of the movie? Uh, Jeff Ferry. Uh, it was a it was a really good match. I I have to say of the, all the you know secondary characters in the movie, Big Glory Frank McRae is by far my favorite. Yeah, and heartbreaking as well. Oh, he I mean when they they go downstairs short I think shortly after the fight or one of the other fights where he's all beat up, they go downstairs to his where he lives. Yeah, and he's got nothing. He's got like one picture hanging up. Yeah, and he's like, well, you know, I'm just waiting for my big break. I'm just waiting for my break. And you know, Stallone's like, how long you've been waiting? He's like, seven years. Yeah, and you basically see that um, the clown character, played by Joe Spinell, Burp, is basically using these guys um, until they're no longer of any worth. And then he finds a new one, and he even makes the play to sort of procure Lenny services. Uh, Jeff Hewlett, anything to add revolving uh, or surrounding the, the wrestling aspect of this movie? Well, I gotta, I gotta agree with Ferry that uh, that Old Glory is is awesome and depressing and funny and just awesome all wrapped up into one. And the the scene where they're driving the ice truck and him and and, and Cosmo driving the ice truck into the bar was that was that was great with Stallone in a Santa suit. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> On Christmas Stallone Eve, in a Santa suit. Yeah. Yep, yeah, really great because you know I think both of them at that point. Uh, you know, uh, Glory himself has been in the business for so long and been been, been beaten down and not gotten anywhere. And, and Stallone feeling really bad about what he's got his brother into and how much physical uh, damage is being done to him. You know, they're kind of brothers in misery at that point. They're just kind of taken out and trying to, you know, kind of blow off the steam. But uh, it, regarding the initial uh, wrestling match, I thought it was kind of funny that uh, how good. Uh, Victor appeared to be at wrestling after he had that moment of clarity where he figured out what he was supposed to do. And all of a sudden he knows how to do, you know, different moves and he kind of learns really quickly, you know, how to handle himself in the ring. So he's, you know, throwing people into turnbuckles and bouncing off the ropes and, you know, head butting uh, or shoulder pressing uh, into, into glory stomach. And I thought that was a, it was pretty cool to see how fast he developed. I, I, had to kind of suspend my disbelief a little bit in the fact that he could do so much so quickly, but I kind of thought it was neat the way they kind of developed it as almost a, a natural talent for him. Yeah. And I think that sort of really lends itself to how people perceived wrestling um, in the late seventies. And of course in, in the 1940s where, you know, nowadays, you know, we know that people go to schools to learn how to wrestle or right. people come from an amateur wrestling background. Um, but yeah, it was kind of neat to 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 just see him sort of, um, you know, pick it up. Maybe based on the uh, matches that he had watched. But uh, it's it's uh, some really there is a lot of wrestling in this movie. If you're a fan of wrestling movies, um, this is one I would definitely recommend. And I guess now we should sort of talk a little bit about Frank McRae's Big Glory character because he is really the the aspect of this movie that takes it away from being a, a straight comedy. <laughs> Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. And and basically, Big Glory, on Christmas Eve, he's hanging out with, uh, with Cosmo, and they're both incredibly drunk, and he decides to end it. And Stallone's reaction to 
Big Glory in that scene is is really really great because his character's drunk, but it's kind of amazing to watch the character um, sober up really really uh, quickly when Big Glory starts to do you know some really really damaging things to himself. Do you guys have any sort of thoughts? about uh, Frank McRae's performance or Stallone's performance in this Christmas Eve scene, uh, Jeff Ferry. Well, like you said, I mean, it goes from being probably the most fun of the entire movie. They're out, they're on the town, they're crashing into things, they got the Santa suit, and then they hit the bridge, and you can't tell at first that Big Glory is, he's in serious mode now. Yeah. And he's talking about like, oh, you know, you know, it's never going to happen for me. This and that. And then, like you said, you see Stallone go from like he's all happy and they're goofing around to being like, well, you know, no, no, you know, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. But it's such a weird scene because I, I guess I don't really want to give away exactly what happens. Yeah. But like the funniest laugh in the entire movie happens shortly after that, where like is something you think one thing's going to happen and then the opposite happens. Yeah. And I mean, I was watching the movie by myself, and I was cracking up, laughing out loud. Yeah. At a at a scene where you really shouldn't be, but I was rolling laughing. Yeah. Because both those guys played it so well, they had me so sucked into it. Then when something else happened, I was, I mean, I was just, it was hilarious. Yeah. It, it's funny. Frank McRae was one of those actors that I knew through um, his his James Bond connection. Um, I knew him really from uh, one of the Timothy Dalton movies, License to Kill. So going back and and seeing him in this movie was uh, and and Fist, which he had a much uh, smaller role, um, was really really neat. Um, Jeff Hewlett, any anything to add regarding uh, the Christmas Eve sequence or or uh, Frank McRae or Stallone's acting in that sequence? I think uh, Jeff Ferry summed it up pretty well, so I won't rehash what he already said. But I think if you look at this particular scene, uh, you know, with them driving around and having a good time and and then, you know, it quickly turns very, very serious. I think it illustrates kind of a theme that goes on through the entire movie where you have these pieces of the film that are really funny and you get these really genuine. I had a lot of really genuine laughs watching a lot of this movie. And then you'd have these really serious scenes mm-hmm. and they, you know, they're almost two different extremes. And then but they seem to just flow together really well. And I think this th- that sequence uh, between the two of them, I, I think, illustrates that concept really well. It's probably the best flow of, of comedy into the serious and then out of it again that you have throughout the entire film. Yeah. Yeah. So I think. Since we're talking about acting in this movie, let's talk about Lenny a little bit, or I'm sorry, Victor, played by Lee Canalito a little bit. And one of the really great things that I liked about his character in this movie is his relationship with the the character of, of Susan, who was teaching this guy who clearly didn't have much education. Um, she was teaching him words that he could add into his vocabulary. Those were some of my favorite scenes with him uh, were the scenes where he was, you know, going through his studies, if you will. Um, and even the handful of scenes where he, he interacted with, with Susan. Do uh, you guys have uh, anything to add in terms of uh, Lee uh, Canalito's performance as Victor? Um, Jeff Hewlett. 
Yeah, actually, the um, the first time you see him kind of standing in the doorway uh, with Susan, they're kind of like, uh, you know, in the, in the front of an apartment building, I guess, is this, the apartment building that Susan lives in, I guess, with her mother. Yeah. And it's kind of a, a, a heartwarming scene because you can see that she's trying to help him to better himself. And he really wants to do the same thing for her. And he's talking about how long it's going to take him. To, to work up all of this money to buy this place in Jersey that they can live together. And I think that speaks a lot to the character. And, and I think it was really, really well played because there wasn't a time where I didn't think that uh, Victor was kind of a simple guy. So he did a really good job of playing the character. And I think that moment really kind of solidified how big his heart was. You know, despite the fact that he could he could brutalize people in a wrestling ring, what what he really wanted out of life was just a simple a simple existence. Yeah, and I think by the end of the movie, he is really out of the three brothers, he's the only brother that really never loses his way. Um oh. Jeff Ferry, anything to add regarding Lee Canalito? Well, the first thing I would say is like whatever happened to him. I like, know he's not even <laughs> he's not even clickable on Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I mean, he showed up in the movie, and I'm, I'm watching it, man. I mean, he, he's not like it's not like he can't act. He's ha- he's hanging in there with two guys that are well established actors. Mm-hmm. I did the same thing. I tried to look him up. I'm like, what happened to this guy? Like, was he a wrestler that yeah. just uh, I never heard of? I thought he was you know some wrestler who wrestled with a mask for 20 years that I didn't know or something. Yeah, but yeah, with him and uh, when him and Susan are out. Those two are almost in a different movie. Mm-hmm. Like they're sweet and innocent and nice and they're helping each other and helping other people. And the only time – I mean every other character in the movie has some sort of you know major personality flaw. Even Annie, who's basically a nice person, is leading Cosmo on. Yeah. Everybody else, those two are like completely redeemable characters and you want things to work out for them. Everybody else, you can pretty t- much take or leave depending on whether you like them or not. But – like you want you're like you kind of are hoping the whole time that nothing happens to them. So when it comes down to that final match, I mean, you're really pulling for him for a lot of reasons. You're like, I hope this guy doesn't get hurt. He's so nice. I yeah. spots him for two hours. Be so nice. Yeah. And there's another really great scene between Cosmo and Victor where Cosmo sort of expresses his doubts that Victor will ever get out of hell's kitchen and to paraphrase he he says to him those things just don't happen for people like us it seemed like there was a lot of honesty in that scene and it's funny because parts of this movie were apparently based on stallone's childhood and stallone did make it so it's kind of interesting to think at the time that he wrote this um, that might have been something that sort of was sitting in the back of his head was this idea that, you know, some dreams are just always going to be dreams. And Stallone's dream came true. Um, so I thought that was kind of a, a neat scene to watch outside of the vacuum of the movie, if you will. Do either one of you guys have a you know feeling about that encounter between Victor and Cosmo? Uh, Jeff Ferry. I mean, it like ties the movie together of like you really feel for like. Like he's really laying it out there. He's like, listen, no matter what we do, no matter what I, what, how much hustling I do, this is where we're going to be. Yeah. You know, this is our lot in life. This is where we're going to be. You know, we're never going to, you know, the most we could ever hope for is we got a couple more dollars in our pockets. Right. That's the way he looks at it. The most he can aspire to is to basically what be stitch 
be the local <laughs> tough guy, the local guy that has a little bit of money. Yeah. And if everything goes badly for you, you're big glory. You have nothing. You're working for the clown. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, I think it really it was a juxtaposition of a of a dire outlook of of one character uh, and kind of is resigning himself and his family and his friends to being stuck where they are and, and, and being essentially helpless because they're kind of slaves to money and they really don't have any way to make any significant money to get out of the situation that they're in uh, against a simpler guy who's living kind of on his hopes. You know, he's, he's kind of working a manual labor job hauling ice around up these long flights of stairs. I mean, it's pretty backbreaking work, but he's, he feels like he's working towards a goal and he's not letting uh, the, the the negativity of his surroundings rob him of his dreams. He's kind of holding on to it. So you have these two guys, one that's resigned to not having any dreams and just saying, forget about it. We're stuck here. And his brother, who is is really working towards something, even though it seems like it's not anywhere near attainable. Because uh, you, you see that in the in the scene between him and Susan in the doorway. And he's, you know, he's at to work for whatever another 18 years or whatever it was or 10 years to, to make up enough money or save enough money, but he's still doing it. So I, I think that just really illustrated the two extremes in yeah. attitudes. Excellent. And that takes us to the, the final match of the, of the movie, which in um, I don't want to say typical Stallone fashion, but in a very Stallone like scenario and a very cinematic scenario the arena that they're fighting in or the the bar room the back room they're fighting in um has an exposed roof and it's pouring rain out so victor and terry funk's character are wrestling in a ring that is covered in water and it adds a great visual element to the scene and it's a really long match considering that it almost feels like it's devoted as much time as, you know, the matches in Rocky or Rocky 2. Overall, what was your takeaway from this final match in Paradise Alley, uh, Jeff Ferry? I mean, cinematically, it's so unique to be like, that's the thing that I remembered. I'm like, as soon as that scene came on and they started fighting, I'm like, oh, a wrestling match in pouring rain. This is what I remember about this movie. I mean, there's just shot after shot of like slow motion suplex, slow motion body slam. There's a lot of slow motion, people hitting the mat and water spraying up. And yeah, I mean, it's every bit as long as a, as the Rocky fights. Mm -hmm. The main difference I would say is I found it hard to kind of know what, not what was happening, but like who was winning. Yeah. They both look just as beat up. The only thing you could tell was Victor was getting very badly hurt, but I mean, Frankie looked just as hurt. Yeah. Like I, 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 I sometimes didn't know who was winning. Like in a Rocky fight, you kind of always know someone's always kind of letting you know what's happening. This guy's winning. This guy's not. I mean, you kind of were just waiting for somebody to die. Like <laughs> yeah. One of these, one of these two guys is going to die in the ring. Well, what do they go? They go 22 rounds. Oh yeah. 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 It is literally longer than your average WWE matches. Oh yeah. By, by, uh, by stretches. <laughs> um, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, just to build on what uh, Jeff Ferry was saying, I was really impressed with the choreography of that sequence. I thought the way they'd done a lot of the moves was very well executed. Cause I, yeah, I used to be a big wrestling fan myself uh, many years ago, uh, back in the WCW days. I'd gone to many shows, and I'd watched all the shows on TV and the pay-per-view, so I 
have watched my fair share. And looking at that scene, I recognize a lot of the things that I had seen in more modern wrestling uh, executed pretty well. And with the enhancement of the added water splashing around it, it kind of made the fight look a little more dynamic. Oh, totally. If you will. Yeah. And I think both both of the actors really uh, did a great job in the ring, even though, you know, Terry Funk is a, is a wrestler. But, um, you know, I thought for a, for a non-wrestler, I think I thought Victor really sold it. Yeah. Sold it pretty well. Yeah. And one thing that did confuse me, though, at the end of the match, like they declare one winner and then all of a sudden there's a different winner. Yeah, it, it has this really weird finish, which I guess for wrestling uh, we've come to expect. But Frankie gets disqualified. Uh, but then the match continues. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, Ferry, any any way to, to clarify this for us? The only way I can clarify it is if, if you're a wrestling fan, you're not thrown off because this is the kind of stuff that actually <laughs> sure. happens. Yeah. Yeah. It was the same thing. Like, yeah, they say it's disqualified. And then there's the run in by the manager who says, that, yeah, if you do that, we know we're going to kill you or whatever. And yeah. then, oh, no, no, never mind. He's not disqualified. Everything's fine. Just keep fighting. We're good. Yeah. I think it was sort of Stallone's way of saying, hey, I'm going to give you the Rocky and the Rocky 2 ending in the same movie. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. But uh, yeah, that match was really great. And. Um, Terry Funk choreographed it, so, um, you know, a guy with his kind of ring mind, um, it's not a surprise that he turned in such a great performance. Now, before I get to our mystery filmmaker's opinion of this movie and some words from Stallone, do you guys have any final thoughts regarding Paradise Alley? Jeff Ferry. Uh, again, I'll just say it's a, it was a very good movie. I mean, if you can just, if you can make it through the first, like, minute and a half, of like Stallone singing, you're good. Like, cause after that, it's an excellent film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff Hewlett. This movie, like I said before, really surprised me. Uh, the, the intro as, as the other Jeff said, kind of threw me off too. I didn't know what to expect with, you know, with the, with the singing and the, you know, the weird outfits they had on and the, I wasn't sure where it was going to go, but once all was said and done and the movie was over, I realized just how much I liked it. And, Something that really stood out to me was the number of times the movie kind of threw me for a loop because I, I realized something in myself after I watched it that I expect certain things to happen in movies now because they always seem to happen in modern movies. For example, uh, after Victor wins the arm wrestling match, right, you see a scene outside where he's sitting on a brownstone set of steps and, you know, the goon squad kind of comes up to him. And you say, oh, we got some business to talk about with you. And I I am fully expecting them to either beat him within an inch of his life or kill him and have Stallone have to come out and take revenge. Right. I was fully expecting that to happen. That's not what happens. And then the thing with the two brothers kind of changing their their whole characters and becoming each other, essentially. And then the scene with with Big Glory, you know, doing himself in a lot of these things that I didn't expect to happen or, or, or I expected something different to happen, and the movie didn't live up to that for me. And I thought that that was really great that it could do that for me and kind of change the way I'm thinking and try to you know, maybe rethink the way I expect things out of film. So I would say that anybody who hasn't seen this movie, and if you are a Stallone fan or a wrestling fan, you really need to, put, to, to check this movie out. And I'm, I'm actually probably going to pick this up for my collection. Yeah, and, and one of the things I, I like about this movie is it – feels like a Stallone movie in the sense that 
all the movies that Stallone's been creatively involved with, uh, in which, you know, where he's not sort of just being hired as an actor where he's got input on the script or he's got a co-write on it is Stallone has this incredible ability to just let his characters live for a little bit before, you know, you really get into the, the action of the film. And I'm not sure if that's a product of the way they made films, uh, you know, prior to let's say the 1980s, but whatever it is, I really, really love the way that Stallone constructs his stories because they're very, very character driven and you have the opportunity to see the characters live and breathe before, you know, things really get going. And, you know, nowadays you might not see that as as much because audiences don't or Hollywood doesn't think that audiences have attention spans for it. But uh, it is really something cool to see in Paradise Alley and in and in Stallone written movies overall. So, yeah, this is a movie that I'm, I'm very, very fond of. And um, I remember after watching it for the first time, I was like. I'm so glad that this is a movie that I've found, but also that it's a movie that I'm able to appreciate more now than I probably was, you know, would have been had I seen it a few years earlier. Um, you know, watching it after a lot of other Stallone movies have happened, um, it's kind of uh, like opening a, a cool little time capsule. Another person who really, really loves this movie is director Rob Zombie. <laughs> And he did um, an interview with a magazine or a website called The Dissolve, where they ask people about uh, movies that other people seem to hate. And um, I'm going to read a little bit of Rob's comments regarding this. And he says, actually, I don't know if everyone hates this movie. I remember the reviews were terrible and most people I know haven't seen it and don't talk about it. But what the hell do I know? Um, how do I know what people like? And Rob Zombie was 13 when this movie came out. And he says, I think it's a great movie. I loved it. I went to see it when it came out after Rocky came out. I was a big fan like the rest of the world. And he followed up Rocky with Fist, which was a pretty good film too. But it didn't really deliver on the Rocky promise. And then Paradise Alley. I think that it just got nailed by everybody and it was a disaster. But it's a great film. It's a really cool film. And it's actually gotten better, I think, over the years. It's got a great cast. It's got a great vibe. There's a lot of good character actors in it. He goes on to say, I think maybe I loved it because it was kind of Rocky-ish in a way. His character was a little bit like Rocky Balboa, even though he didn't do any of the fighting. It was his brother, Kid Salami, who does the wrestling in the movie. But going back and watching it again, there are so many great people in it, like Terry Funk and Tom Waits and Armand DeSante and Kevin Conway and Joe Spinell. There are so many great character actors in the movie. It still holds up. And it has that look of movies that died after the 70s. Nothing looked like that again. And even for Stallone, his career changed so much after that that he never really did stuff like that again. So I will link to that interview in the show notes. It's a, a pretty interesting interview to read and sort of get uh, Rob Zombie's perspective on growing up a, a film fan uh, in the 1970s. Now, I also have um, a 1980 interview that Stallone did with Roger Ebert just prior to uh, Nighthawks coming out and while he was still filming Victory. And the article um, basically starts, uh, the portion related to Paradise Alley, Roger Ebert writes, um, Stallone blames himself for part of Paradise Alley's poor reception. And Stallone says, 
I'll never forgive myself for the way I allowed myself to be manipulated during the editing of that film. There were a lot of scenes in there to give atmosphere and character, and they wanted them out just to speed things along. They removed 40 scenes altogether. I put 10 of them back in for the version shown on TV. Um, For example, the whole sequence of the soldier without legs sitting on a bar eating peanuts. So um, that's pretty amazing to see Stallone in in 1980 talking about his feelings on that movie while they were still pretty fresh. And the idea of 40 additional scenes to flesh (laughs) out the characters in that movie um, really makes me wish that there was incentive for somebody, uh, you know, preferably Stallone to go back and put together uh, his ultimate director's cut. But I doubt we'll ever see that. So those are some uh, cool little comments um, related to that movie. And I also have a more recent Paradise Alley thought from Stallone from um, An Evening with Stallone, which took place over in the UK back in January. And he, he talks about the opening weekend and he says, okay, I walk into the theater to see Paradise Alley and there are two people and one's asleep. Two people, opening week. It really was a humbling experience. You can't go back when it's done. I loved Paradise Alley. I really did. So um, it's kind of cool to look at his thoughts from 1980 and then from 2014 and see how they they sort of uh, mesh together. So I got to say, guys, I really enjoyed talking Paradise Alley with you guys. I think it's it's a great movie and um, one that I think People um, should definitely give a look if they haven't already. All right, so now we're going to jump over to 1981's Nighthawks, which uh, came out April 4th, 1981 here in the U.S. And this was Stallone just in acting mode here. It's directed by Bruce Malmuth and written by David Schaber and Paul Silbert. Um, it also stars Billy D. Williams, Rutger Hauer, uh, the Bionic Woman, Lindsay Wagner, and has a score by Keith Emerson, uh, the only film we're talking about today that uh, doesn't have Bill Conte's music. So, Jeff Ferry, I know you're a big fan of this movie, um, which was originally uh, proposed to be The French Connection Part 3. Um, do you want to give people sort of the high-level overview of what Nighthawks is? Uh, sure. And uh, I'll real quickly relay how I came to know Nighthawks. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I may have mentioned this before, I was a big horror fan. There was a movie called Terror in the Isles that showed all these horror movies. And like it was a big thing about Leatherface and this and that. And for some reason, Nighthawks is in that show <laughs> and is showcased from beginning to end. Like they pick about five or six movies and they show you the beginning it's mostly focused on Rutger Hauer because he's the bad guy. So they show you – you see a scene from the very beginning. You see a scene from 20 minutes in. You literally see about 8 to 10 minutes of the movie. And I would watch this other movie and I'd be like, what is this Stallone movie that I haven't seen? I was like, it looks fantastic. I've never seen him with the – like he's got the helicopter and this and that. And I got to go find it. So I made it my mission at that point to go out and find it. And it didn't disappoint. I mean he just – he starts out as like your average – well, not your average. He's like an undercover cop, basically, him and Billy D. Williams. So, I mean, if right there, if I didn't sell the movie for you with Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams, our, our cops and their partners, right there, you should be you should be buying a ticket right now. Yes. And then you're watching the other half. You're watching Rutger Hauer. He's your typical 1981 international terrorist, suave, sophisticated. 
you know, he blows up a few things in Europe and things go bad and he has to make his way to the United States to continue his activities. Stallone gets pulled onto a task force. And of course, as Stallone is, you know, a great cop, Rutger Hauer is a great criminal. They will have to meet up at some point. Yeah. And Stallone has an excellent look in this film. It's kind of like Serpico. He's got like uh, the really well-trimmed beard and glasses and um, some really great hair work uh, as well. Um, Jeff Hewlett, uh, initial thoughts on Nighthawks. Well, I don't think I had seen this movie since I was a little kid. So coming back and watching it now, my initial thoughts on it were it's awesome for one thing, but it seems like the kind of movie that could easily fit in our time period that we're living in now in, in, in 2014, you know, the, the, the way the movies played out in the story, uh, it seems like that exact same kind of scenario could play out today. Yeah. And it's interesting because, uh, at the end of our discussion, I'm going to have a, a quote from Stallone addressing that very fact. Oh, that's pretty cool. Anything you want to add before we proceed? Yeah. So just adding a couple of other little tidbits here to entice anybody who hasn't watched it before we get into it. So one thing that really kind of threw me for a loop because my only experience with Billy D. Williams was the Star Wars franchise and Colt 45 commercials. (laughs) He actually curses a lot in this movie. And that just really threw me off. I'm like, whoa, Billy D. Williams is saying MF and like, whoa. So that was really cool. And, uh, you know, I'm sure people out there have heard Craig and I talk about our uh, Star Trek podcast, the Tricorder Transmissions, and, and Jeff Ferry's been on a couple of our episodes. And I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't remember this from when I had seen it as a child, but Persis Kambata is also in this movie, which is a connection to Star Trek, the motion picture for us. So that was kind of a, a neat, endearing thing as well. You know, Rucker Hauer is fantastic, as he always is, as the terrorist. And uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff, so I know we're going to talk more about it, so I'm not going to really mention much more until we, we get into it. But um, I'm, I'm really glad that I got to sit down and watch this movie again, because I don't know if, if I wasn't doing this show with you guys, I don't know if I would have had the occasion uh, to watch this again. Yeah, and I got to say, it was it was really interesting, the lengths I had to go through to watch this movie. And I won't get into too much detail, but um, a few weeks out, I looked on um, Netflix and Amazon Prime and, you know, neither one of those services had the movie, but it was available for rental um, for two ninety nine uh, through Amazon. And I was like, okay, you know, the week, week before we record, I'll sit down and uh, rent it and watch it. So I go down to sit, uh, sit down and watch it the other night. And it says in the Amazon store, no longer available at this time. And I said, son of a B. This movie, uh, this time last week, was here. I I know it was because I had sent uh, Jeff Hewlett a text indicating that that was the way we could watch it. At this point, it was too late for me to order the movie through Amazon and get it here um, in time, you know, via Prime shipping. And I guess I could have watched it on the uh, the iTunes store for $14.99, but uh, at that point, I'd rather just have a physical DVD. So out of all the movies we've watched for this episode, Nighthawks is definitely going to be the hardest one for people to sort of here in the u.s track down uh, uh if they don't have it already uh you know victory is available on amazon prime uh, streaming and as we mentioned uh, paradise alley um is also on uh, netflix 
And I guess Fist, you would have to um, either get the DVD or, or find another way to watch it. But uh, that was uh, kind of scary because I knew we were recording this episode and I still had to watch Nighthawks. And I said, hey, it was like getting the, the rug pulled out from under my feet. So one funny thing I thought uh, going into this movie is Billy D. Williams' character is named Matthew Fox, which instantly made me think of the actor who uh, is most famous for the TV show Lost. <laughs> and Stallone plays uh, Detective Sergeant Deke De Silva. And I thought that Deke was an interesting, interesting character because – the movie starts where you see a very strange-looking woman walking home uh, late at night through a very, very dangerous part of the city. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Is, is this the opening of the movie, or do we have a Rutger Hauer stinger before it? I'm trying to remember. I feel like that starts there, and then it goes to him in London. Okay, that, yeah, that's what I thought. So you've got this this strange-looking woman who is clearly uh, going to be uh, mugged and, and, and possibly accosted in some way. But thankfully, before that has a chance to go down, the strange-looking woman pulls off a mask and it's revealed to be Sylvester Stallone's Deke Da Silva. And he basically does what they call in the movie decoy work, which I guess is uh, a way for the police to lure criminals out again i thought this was kind of an interesting way to present stallone because they present him in a manner that we're uh, assuming that he can convincingly double for a woman um if somebody isn't really paying too much attention so i thought this was kind of another interesting character who surely as the movie goes on gets very you know sort of physical um, but I, I, I thought that was neat. But getting into that aspect of the character, um, as Jeff Ferry alluded to at the beginning of this show, he uh, is a cop who really seems to be uh, working as a cop for the right reason. He really seems to want to make a difference, and that doesn't always involve killing people. Jeff Ferry, do you have any further thoughts uh, about Stallone's character here in Nighthawks? Yeah, they they do their best to make him not be – should not fall into one of the tropes. He's not a straight-laced, by-the-book guy, but he's also not a psychotic, you know, Martin Riggs, Mel Gibson type either. He's like not so far astray where you're like, well, this guy wouldn't even be a police officer. Look at him. He's nuts. Yeah. I mean they do decoy work, but like it seems that they're good at it and whatever. I mean he must be good at it. He can pull off playing a lady with a full beard. I mean he must be quite an actor. <laughs> but I mean, it just shows they look like they're just they're tough, hardworking cops. So when later on they get pulled to go on to another assignment where other people might be like, wow, I'm getting to work with the feds and get to do this. They're mad. Yeah. They're like, no, this is what we we like to be out on the street catching criminals. You know, he says this is FBI stuff. I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. I think Jeff nailed it pretty well. I, I think. You see, uh, I like the 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 interplay when they're in that initial uh, FBI briefing, and it's kind of going on a long time. And uh, Sly's character kind of pushes back against the um, the the FBI uh, case leader there, the, the, and they kind of have a, a back and forth where he gets his buttons pushed really bad, and he kind of he doesn't want to kill people. And then uh, I, I believe the 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 head of the case kind of pries into his his past and so talks about his wife having left him and he walks out 
He's like, you know what? F this. I'm out of here. I quit. You know, then changes his mind later. But I think I'm not sure if it was more of a product of the times that the movie was made, because I think movies today that are of a similar vein, I think they, they kind of have to go over the top. No pun intended with the other side <laughs> movie there. Sorry, that just came out. But, you know, I think it's expected for movies today with, with cops kind of like to go die hard, you know, where you, they're, you know, jumping out of explosions and things. But I think back then things were a little more reasonable. And I think it was a little more realistic. I, I think this is a much more realistic kind of buddy cop movie. I don't want to call it a buddy cop movie, but I think it's more of a realistic partner cop movie. Than, than we would get today. Yo, yeah, I, I definitely agree. So let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, Rutger Hauer plays Wolfgar, who is an international terrorist, and we're introduced to him when he blows up a building in London and then makes his way to the United States, um, where I guess Intel tips off the FBI that he's there, and Stallone and Billy D are recruited uh, on this task force. And one of the interesting things I thought in that scene where Stallone and uh, the FBI supervisor go at it is um, the FBI supervisor uh, alludes to the fact that he was in uh, Vietnam and he had 53 confirmed kills. And Stallone, you know, matter-of-factly says, well, that was war. Um, you know, this is different. And Billy D, after he quits, makes a really strong argument where he says, hey, um, you know, he almost takes like the, the Spock approach where the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one where he says we have an opportunity to stop potentially the loss of hundreds, thousands of lives by killing this guy. It's definitely something that we should do. I think the most interesting character in this movie is the Deke Da Silva character because you get sort of the character who – he has the biggest arc in the movie in the sense that he goes from a very passive stance to a very, very aggressive stance. Um, and and that's really the, the most interesting thing in this movie for me aside from the excellent Keith Emerson score. <laughs> but, uh, you know – this is really one of those movies where you're seeing Stallone quote unquote acting anything to add in regards to Stallone's performance or anybody else's performance in this movie, uh, Jeff Ferry. Well, I mean, everybody's excellent. And I mean, I have a, I mean, Rutger Hauer helps to make this movie cause he is an absolutely credible threat from the second he shows up. Yeah. When he plants the original bomb He's just smooth and sophisticated, and he's just like, it's another day at the office for him. And, like, he makes it very clear from the very beginning. He's like, he'll just kill anybody in his way. But he's not in that – he's not unbelievably cool. He's not Dr. Lecter cool because yeah. he makes mistakes. Uh-huh. Like, he does make mistakes. He's, like, human. But he also has no regard for anybody's life except his own. Yeah, and that's the really shocking thing at the beginning of the movie when you see him interacting with the sales girl. Um, in the in the building that he actually blows up. And then that's basically where you get the idea that, wow, this guy really has no uh, remorse and he's interacting with somebody that he knows will be dead two minutes from then. Um, it was really kind of a shocking sequence for me. And, uh, 
you know, I've always been a fan of Rutger Hauer and, uh, I can only imagine in, in the early eighties, um, I was, I was too young to really appreciate these movies at the time, but seeing a movie like this in Blade Runner, um, a year later, uh, I can imagine people sort of being blown away by the work that Rutger Hauer was doing. Jeff Hewlett, anything to add, uh, overall in regards to the overall performances in this film? Yeah, one thing that stuck out to me uh, out of all the the Rutger Hauer sequences, since we're kind of on that topic at this point, there was a a, a part where uh, he was, um, I guess he's a kind of at a party, right? And uh, this is kind of early on in the movie, and I guess you find out that he's sort of working with a movement, and uh, you know, one of these guys comes in to talk to him about what he's just recently done with his bombing, and says, "Listen, man." You know, you're 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 hurting the movement. You killed was it four kids mm-hmm. with that blast? And Rucker Howard is like, he really doesn't even care. He has no remorse at all. Kind of reminded me a bit of um, you know, how they did the Joker in the in the Dark Knight. Not as outrageous, but you know, they kind of set this dog loose to do all these dirty deeds, and now he's kind of going too far, and they kind of can't stop him, right? Yeah, he's doing what he wants to do. You know, he's like, well, I have to do these extreme things to get the message across. And he's kind of going rogue, more rogue than they wanted him to go. So I think that really set the stage for all of the other things that he does throughout the rest of the film. But that particular sequence really stood out to me as a as an outstanding illustration of his character. And, you know, there are smaller bits where you, you get some really great insight into, uh, you know, Stallone's character, which we just you know talked about how he, he had that kind of interplay with the FBI supervisor. And and you got a little more about Billy D. Williams all throughout the movie, but I think as far as depth for me, I thought I thought Howard's character, you know, Wolfgar was maybe the best character in the movie overall. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times the villain is the people uh, is the character a lot of, a lot of people respond to because they're the villain. You know, a lot of people watch Star Wars and they're not drawn to Luke Skywalker; they're drawn to Darth Vader. So uh, that's definitely the, the case in this movie. And another sequence that really sort of illustrated how devious this guy was is his 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 M.O. was to arrive in a city and basically find a woman he could attach himself to that would ultimately, what, like, really be his patsy? Is that fair to say, Jeff Ferry? It, it seemed like he just needed a place to hang, like, to kind of where his hangout was going to be as opposed to renting an apartment. Yeah. He would just find a woman and shack up with her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you had alluded to uh, mistakes that he made and possibly one of the biggest mistakes he makes is the woman that he shacked up with, who is a a stewardess. She's getting ready for work one morning and in the closet in, in her apartment, she discovers his case full of weapons and uh Wolfgar discovers her and I guess without really thinking through or feeling that he had no other avenue to go down, he kills her. Um, but it doesn't seem like he stages it in any kind of way to indicate that it was anything more. You know, he doesn't stage it to look like a, a break in or a robbery. And, and that's one of the, the things that sort of leads uh, the police to believe that that Wolfgar is operating in the city. Is that is that a fair assessment, guys? Uh, Jeff Ferry? Yes, and if you remember, the other mistake that uh, he makes is that one guy, I think, from the movement shows up to confront him, the one you're talking about, that says, you killed all these kids, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 
he thinks the guy's going for a gun or he's going to do something. So he kills that guy, too. At, at, they're at a party. He just kills the guy in the hallway. Yeah. So he's leaving a, a trail of bodies uh, behind. And uh, the stewardess murder, we get an appearance, uh, one of uh, several scenes in this movie where he appears. But we get our old friend, Joe Spinell, plays <laughs> Lieutenant Munifo. And I got to tell you, I love Joe Spinell. I'd imagine that when Slycast starts to wind down after we've looked at the career of Sylvester Stallone, I really think that Spinell cast um, is is the road <laughs> I want to go down. Uh, any any thoughts or feelings on uh, Joe Spinell in this movie, guys? Uh, Jeff Hewlett. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel as strongly about it as you do, but I would definitely be uh, on board for for Spinell cast if you were to try to spin that up. <laughs> Jeff Ferry. I mean, if you were gonna, if you're gonna cast like, hey, we need a lieutenant in the New York City Police Department. I mean, he just looks and acts. I mean, the whole time he interacts with Stallone, you can't tell if they're best friends, bitter enemies, if they're arguing, are they talking? Because all they do is yell at each other the whole movie. I mean, they could be best friends for 20 years or hate each other's guts, and you'd never know. Yeah, because that's just the way they interact all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um. That's really, uh, really some some great interaction there. Now, one character we haven't really talked too much about, except for his, uh, I guess, his love of profanity, is um, Matthew Fox, played by Billy D. Williams, and he has a pretty substantial role in this film. That is, in that he's really the catalyst for how this movie really ends up. There's a sequence where. Fox and De Silva are touring local discotheques and clubs in Manhattan in the hopes of finding people who might have seen the girl who was murdered by Wolfgar. And at the same time, they're looking on a lark, hopefully, to, to possibly find Wolfgar. And lo and behold, they're in one of the nightclubs and Stallone looks across the room and sees Rutger Hauer's Wolfgar. And you got a really interesting uh, sequence where Wolfgar sees uh, De Silva. De Silva makes Wolfgar. And you have this moment where you're not exactly sure what's going to happen. And then Wolfgar pulls out a gun and, uh, and opens fire in this New York City nightclub. Which leads to a foot chase that ends up in the subway. And you've got Wolfgar taking a hostage where he puts a knife to a, a woman's throat. And there's a really tense sequence where Fox and De Silver are both looking for Wolfgar after he's ended up down in the subway. And once they finally spot him, a train's approaching and Fox is yelling at De Silva to take a shot. And De Silva rightfully says, I don't have a clear shot. I don't have a clear shot. And De Sil and, and um, Wolfgar is able to get on the train and escape. And then eventually um, he slices Fox's face with a knife, I guess, after De Silva and Fox catch up to him. And at that point, it, it's really until his partner is injured, coupled with the fact that he couldn't take the shot that De Silva really decides that Wolfgar needs to go down, and it becomes, not to use a movie cliche, 
it becomes personal. Now, I hope I didn't botch the explanation of that sequence too much, but uh, Jeff Hewlett, do you have anything that you want to talk about regarding that section of the movie? Yes, I do. So this is the only part of the movie where I actually kind of felt a little bit bad for Wolfgar. Uh, and the reason for that is that there's a there's a description of when they're doing a description of, of Wolfgar and they're talking about the you know his what he does and and who he is, they say explicitly that he likes the nightlife. So he's out in this club, obviously he's trying to enjoy himself. And here they come ruining his night. You know, you can see him in the corner. He's kind of dancing a little bit, you know, eyeing up the chicks. He's got a drink in his hand. You know, they could have waited until the night was over. Actually, I'm just, I'm just kidding around. But that, that <laughs> I, I, I really love the, um, the, 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 the late 70s nightclubs that you get to see in this movie. It's kind of a really neat retrospective on when I was a little kid. I remember, uh, you know, a lot of that. That was the, when the whole disco era was going on. But it, the, the sequence... That, that you talked about, I, I thought there were some really key moments in there. One was it when he grabs that that lady in the subway platform and he's got the knife up to her throat. And you can just see in, in, in Howard's face that he just doesn't care. man. He's ready to just take whoever he needs to to get away and he'll do whatever he has to do to, to escape. And, you know, the, you're, you're nowhere near the end of the movie, so you know somehow he's going to get away. But the, I love the... Um, when when Sly they couldn't get on the actual train so they kind of jump on the end and he has to slides to do this sort of like a kick move to get through the glass and come through onto the yeah onto the train car that was a kind of a pretty cool move so you get a little bit of an action sequence there and and I don't think I've ever seen someone's jaw get sliced open yeah in a movie before and it, it was a really kind of a neat move because I remember I've walked up those steps in that 42nd street subway station before. So, I mean, I, it was a familiar looking scene to me and the way that they had filmed it, like you didn't, you almost didn't know what happened until, you know, you see, uh, you see Billy was holding his face and Sly comes over and is kind of holding on to him. You kind of didn't, you, you, I thought maybe he slashed his throat for a minute there. So yeah. when, when he actually just got the jaw, I was happy about that. Cause I didn't know if they were going to, I couldn't really remember much from when I'd seen the movie when I was younger, so I wasn't sure if Billy D actually died during that scene or not. Yeah, and really quick to talk about the the makeup effects in this movie. They were done by legendary special effects makeup artist Dick Smith, who did um, groundbreaking work in The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, as well as Taxi Driver. So that was a, an effect I saw in the movie, and then in the credits when I saw Dick Smith, I said, of course, it makes perfect sense. Um, one thing I want to key in on that you talked about with the hostage was at this point in the movie, we had already seen Wolfgar show very little regard for human life. So as a viewer, I was very, very worried for that hostage. Even when he was safe and secure on the train, I wasn't sure that he wasn't just going to slice her throat anyway. Jeff Ferry, do you have any follow-up thoughts on, on what Jeff Hewlett was saying or your thoughts on the whole hostage-taking uh, portion of, of that sequence? Yeah, I, I will say the first time uh, I'm watching it, it's one of those, as soon as the two partners go chasing after him and they kind of get separated from everybody else, the first thing you're thinking is, well, here's where Stallone's partner gets killed. <laughs> yeah. Because it's going to be like every movie, his partner's going to get killed, they're going to have a dramatic moment together, 
And Deke's going to be like, I'm going to get him for you, buddy. So when he gets slashed, like uh, Jeff had said, you can't quite tell where he got slashed. So I'm like, well, here it is. It's playing out exactly like I thought. And you really don't even know until the next scene or maybe a couple scenes later, all of a sudden you see Billy Dee Williams in like the hospital with his face all bandaged up. You're like, oh, I I guess he's okay. He just got slashed in the face. So I was glad they didn't go with that of like, oh, he's look, his partner's dead. That's the only reason why he's involved. I mean, he's still hurt, but like they didn't have to. At least then you have Billy Dee Williams for the rest of the movie. And yeah, and as we see, he has no, we see with um, Wolfgar, he has no respect for any human life. And he starts, he takes hostages now. And as we'll see later, he really doesn't care. He'll take anybody hostage. You're not safe if you're a hostage. It's just, well, this is what I need to do. Yeah. He needed to kill everybody on that subway train. He would have. Yeah. So jumping to the, the climax of this very, exciting movie uh, which i'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about but the climax of the movie takes place in a very unique underfilmed location in my opinion which is a roosevelt island tram car full of um i guess some uh international dignitaries that wolfgar is going to use to get the release of some of his comrades is that a fair assessment uh, jeff ferry yeah, they were at the United Nations. They kind of stage something at the United Nations to get the United Nations evacuated. And then they take one of the Roosevelt cars. Mm-hmm. They stop one of the Roosevelt cars with him and uh, Shaka or Shaka, whatever her name is, Shaka Khan on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, this is a really, really great climax. The, you know, the cops are engaged. Stallone's character flies up on a helicopter and has a bird's eye view where Wolfgar basically shows that he means business. He kills the wife of a of a, one of the dignitaries um, by slicing her through. Oh no, by by uh, machine gunning her, and then just throwing her body out of the uh, the tram car. A really really hard sequence to watch, and that was the moment where uh, cinematically I knew that th- that was really. The, the final moment where if there was anybody who was at any point sympathizing with Wolfgar, uh, this was the, the last ditch effort to make sure that people weren't sympathizing with him. And um, ultimately, he demands that De Silva come up via um, a cable system to the tram car to, I guess, get his demands and then also remove a baby that's on board. Um, and then it culminates in a, um, a chase where Wolfgar has demanded a a bus that will take them to a jet. Of course, that sort of gets botched. His female companion gets dispatched, and he crashes into the river, and we think he's dead, Um, which then leads to the the coda of the movie, if you will. What are your thoughts and feelings regarding the first climax of this film, uh, Jeff Hewlett? This is actually one of my favorite parts of this whole movie. For a couple of different reasons. I, I don't know if you guys really noticed this, but one of the things I thought was great about this is the Keith Emerson uh, score really shines during the time when the, the helicopter is kind of flying around and kind of coming up to the side of the, to the tram car. There's a really neat musical sequence in there. If you, if you didn't really notice how cool it was, go back and listen to it again, because I, I think that it, it definitely makes the, the movie feel like it's in the time period that it's really taking place. I mean, back in, 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 in the early 80s but it's really cool music but 
that that whole uh, sequence was really neat. I, I love the use of the tram car because you really felt the, the isolation of the of those those diplomats. So he, he kind of has them in a place where they there's really nothing that anybody can do to help these people. Right. I mean, what, what can they really do? Because you can't really move the tram car because he can just shoot every single one of them as soon as it starts moving. So you kind of have to do what he wants. It's kind of a brilliant way to hold people hostage. Right. Yeah. So the the sequence where he, he machine guns the, the wife and throws her out, I, I love that you have this kind of eye to eye view with, with Stallone in the, the helicopter kind of floating evenly with the tram car so he can kind of look. Uh, Wolfgar in the eyes, and he's kind of trying to plead with him not to do it, but uh, pretty, but particularly effective. I, I, and I think it's kind of a foreshadowing of things you'll see in other more more famous Sly movies in the future. Sequences very similar to that. And um, I, I was wondering whether or not he was actually going to try to kill Stallone when he pulls him up on the cable. I, I didn't think that he was going to hand him the baby. And, and, and just lower him back down. For some reason, I, I kept thinking he was either going to cut the rope or attempt to kill him in some way or give him the baby and then cut the rope or the cable. Mm-hmm. So particularly effective scene. I was actually kind of gripped by it. Yeah, it's definitely um, very, very well done. Uh, Jeff Ferry. I agree. The, uh, the scene on the cable in the car is fantastic. Like when he, uh, you know, he's pleading with him at first not to shoot the, the guy's wife and he shoots her. And he says, this one's for you, De Silva, and shoots her right in front of him while he's watching. And then when he pulls him up, he, you know, he basically asks him, like, why'd you kill the woman? And he just says, I want it to. And that's it. That's all he needed. He's like, I want it to. I had the same feeling as uh, Jeff Hewlett. I, when that baby's on there, I mean, the amount of, like, trepidation you have, because he's touching, the, I mean, it's like a newborn, like maybe six months old. Mm-hmm. He's touching the baby's head and stuff, rubbing it, and, like... He, you've already seen him kill a bunch of people for no reason. He blew up a thing where he was th- – you're like nothing good can come. Like So even when he calls Stallone up there, I was thinking the same thing. Is he going to wait for Stallone to get up there and then just toss the baby down? Is he going to cut the rope with Stallone on it so now basically Stallone feels like he killed this baby? Yeah. I mean none of that would have been out of the ordinary. Yeah. But I think he used the baby as a way to like – he wanted to see the Silva face-to-face. I think he has every intention of some point he's going to kill De Silva, but he just want that's one of his, that's his moment to let him know I beat you. Yeah. Like I'm beating you right now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And ultimately Wolfgar does not beat De Silva and we get probably the most Hollywood <laughs> portion of this movie where we get a callback uh, ultimately to the beginning of the movie where we get some decoy work. So, through some sequence of events, De Silva tries to call Lindsay Wagner, who is somebody he's involved with. And I'll reference a quote from Stallone later where he talks about some of the sacrifices that were made in this movie. Uh, and it seems like her character was shortchanged a little bit. But he gets information that Wolfgar is going to target. Now that Wolfgar hasn't been able to accomplish his primary goal he is gonna make De Silva pay by killing the woman that he loves so we get this sequence where Wolfgar goes to her apartment he breaks in she just got home from work she's doing dishes she's getting dinner ready we get a moment where Wolfgar comes up to her and sure enough she turns around and it is De Silva in decoy mode 
<laughs> and I did say this was a Hollywood sequence. And the only thing that would have made this a more Hollywood sequence was if Billy D. Williams was there to say to Silva, don't do it, man. He's not worth it, which we don't get here. We actually get De Silva taking out Wolfgar. He shoots him a couple times and Wolfgar uh, doesn't seem to want to die. Um, and he keeps charging with his knife. But um, when you look past the logic of the fact that they pretty much could have sprang on Wolfgar as soon as he came to the apartment, it makes for an effective scene as you're watching it. But it was the only portion of this movie that really felt Hollywood to me, which was kind of interesting. Either one of you guys want to pipe in on the ending of this movie, uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, the one thing that I noticed during this final sequence that I thought was really cool, and I actually said, wow, that's cool, was when Wolfgar is creeping into the kitchen. You know, he's he's kind of walking really slowly. There's a, a brief second where you see him walking past some hanging copper pots, and you can see his face reflecting yes. on the back of the... I thought that was really great directorial choice. I, it was so effective, and I, I had a really good reaction to it. Like, That's really cool. Because of the rippling of the face in the pot, Just it really gave you the, the feeling that it, this is something really bad is going to happen. He's creeping in there, and I didn't really realize that that what, what, what was going to happen was going to happen. I when he turned around, I was surprised that it was Stallone in decoy mode. I didn't expect that. I had expected because of the way they had framed the shot, you're seeing Rutger Hauer walking towards you, and you see the the apartment door down the hall in the background. Yeah. Now I had expected Sly to come crashing through the door and shoot him just before he plunged the knife in. That's kind of what I was expecting. So I didn't wasn't really expecting to turn around and have the the bearded wig thing going on. But yeah. I thought it was a cool ending. I I don't know. I know you, this is kind of Hollywood, but I thought yeah. it was cool. Oh, it was definitely a cool ending. It just seemed like uh, in a movie that really felt kind of un Hollywood that it, it had the the Hollywood ending. Um, Jeff Ferry. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'd seen this uh, as part of that other movie, the Terror in the Isles movie. So they give away the ending. So like. I knew that that was coming, but like they, they go through the paces. I mean, him breaking into the house is a good two minutes. Yeah. He's slowly breaking the lock and this and that. And even when Stallone turns to confront him, it doesn't happen instantly. There's still like a good five second beat. Oh yeah. Where they look, they look and you're like, I mean, I don't know what would happen if Wolfgard just drops the knife right there and goes, Oh, you got me. Yeah. Because he makes that move for him. And then, You'll find the thing that I find interesting, and I've read a little bit about it. Yeah, Stallone fires his gun, I believe, twice. Yeah, but you only hear it once, and he's got about seven wounds. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I guess there was, I guess he was supposed to blow him away. Yeah, and just unload on him. Yeah, I actually really think that, um, regardless of of what Wolfgar did, that I I really think that the De Silva character was at a point where. He almost had a license to kill with this guy, and he had gotten past whatever kind of personal objection he had to to killing someone again. Um, and I think uh, it's a it's it's a choice that he would have made. Um, it definitely would have been an interesting um, alternate ending, and it and it makes for some really interesting discussion right now. So that really brings us to the end of Nighthawks, which is another really unique entry into uh stallone's you know film career 
Uh, it is a buddy cop movie, but it's it's a different take on it, and we'll we'll get to see his other take on a buddy cop movie uh, later on down the road in Tango and Cash. But uh, here, um, I I think Nighthawks has a really really uh, interesting feel to it. It's a unique Stone, Stallone film, in my opinion, and uh, part of a, a very interesting period of his career, um, a, as I said. So uh, before I get to some of Stallone's thoughts on this, is there anything you guys want to add uh, before we put Nighthawks to bed? Uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah, I'm not going to retread anything that we've already said because I think uh, we, we've all illustrated a lot of really great things about this movie. And I'll say once again, though, that I, this is a really, really great flick. Uh, definitely check it out if you're out there. Now, there are a few other really cool things that we didn't mention that I was just going to highlight that uh, there are some really great, you know, Manhattan cityscapes in this flick. So it's a, it's almost like a, another time capsule type movie. If you want to check out what what the city looked like back in the day that this film was made, uh, there's uh, some great, great shots of the skylines. Uh, there's some great shots underground in the subways. You can see what it used to look like. Uh, there's a lot of rotary phone use. So if any of you young people out there want to see what phones used to be like when, when we were kids, uh, some, some really cool stuff in there. So you, you, And, of course, the nightclub scene. So you get to see what they used to look like, too. So aside from being a really great movie, it's also another one of those time capsule type things. So you can – in the story being as relevant today as it was back then, it doesn't feel as dated from a story aspect. But it's kind of cool that you get to watch it in, in the time frame in which it was made. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff Ferry. Uh, just to uh, piggyback on that, he just, the thing I like about it is it's a, it's a very good Stallone movie. It's a very good cop movie with a really good uh, antagonist. The thing that I really enjoy about it is there, it never gets to like the, the diehard level craziness. Mm-hmm. Nothing that happens, I would say is impossible. I mean, he doesn't do anything insane. I mean, they chase after a bad guy through the city streets. That happens. Even when they're on the subway train, nothing crazy happens on the subway train. Mostly it's very slowly them moving through it. Yeah, there's never a scene where you're like – like you see in every movie now where a guy jumps off a moving motorcycle onto a train yeah. and you're like, that guy would be dead. <laughs> like, really good point. That would never – that would never – he doesn't jump off a bridge 100 feet into the water yeah. and get away. Yeah. I mean he crashes into the water. But even that – like. The fact that they even thought he was dead, I'm like, why? He just had a slight accident into the water. Yeah. He could very easily have walked away from that. Yeah, this definitely felt like it could have been um, The French Connection Part 3. So, yeah, um, I I really, really enjoyed this discussion of Nighthawks. And before we wrap it up, um, I'm going to go to a, a quote from Sylvester Stallone back in 2006 on Ain't It Cool News he did uh, a Q&A session, which was really neat. People submitted questions, um, and he answered them. And somebody asked him about Nighthawks. And he said, Nighthawks was a very difficult film to make, namely because no one believed that urban terrorism would ever happen in New York, thus felt the story was far-fetched. Nighthawks was even a better film before the studio lost faith in it and cut it to pieces. What was in the missing scenes was extraordinary acting by Rutger Hauer, Lindsay Wagner, and the finale was a blood fest that rivaled the finale of Taxi Driver. But it was a blood fest with a purpose. The stunts in the film were pretty extraordinary because they were invented along the way. Running through the tunnels of an unbuilt subway station was very dangerous but exciting. 
and we were only given one hour to do it, so that made for an interesting evening. Hanging from the cable car was probably one of the more dangerous stunts I was asked to perform because it was untested, and I was asked to hold a folding Gerber knife in my left hand. So if the cable were to snap and I survived the 230-foot fall into the East River with its ice-cold 8-mile-an-hour current, I could cut myself free from the harness because the cable, when stretched out, weighed more than 300 pounds. I tell you this because it's so stupid to believe that I would survive hitting the water, uh, so to go beyond that is absurd. So I actually thought the smart move would be to commit hari-kari on the way down and let the cards fold as they may. <laughs> P.S. Several years later, this cable did snap while testing it on a 100-pound bag of sand. So again, uh, we get some comments from Stallone indicating that there is a beefier version of Nighthawks out there. Um, so we can only imagine the film that could have been. And he also referred to the the ending where uh, uh, Jeff Ferry, you had indicated that um, it does seem like he blows Wolfgar away with shots that we really don't hear. So um, that was pretty great to hear uh, Stallone's thoughts on, on Nighthawks uh, in, in 2006. So before we wrap up for the night, we still have one more movie to talk <laughs> about. Um, we are delivering uh, an extra-sized episode uh, of the Slycast. So we're going to talk about um, a film that was released in the U.S. as Victory, um, known um, outside of North America as Escape to Victory. And it stars, of course, Sylvester Stallone, but it also uh, stars a soccer phenomenon Pele, Max von Sydow, and Michael Caine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I have a friend of mine who uh, – my friend Lou – who taught me how to do Michael Caine, and it's it's really easy. All you have to do is say, I'm Michael Caine. Um, and when you say that, you can instantly do Michael Caine. So that's my little uh, bad impression um, for this episode. So to uh, give a high-level view of a Victory, um, it came out in 1981, July 30th, and it's about a group of allied prisoners of war who are in a German prison camp during World War II, and uh, they ultimately play a game of soccer against a German team. Um, it was directed by a legendary uh, director, John Huston. So this is another sort of Stallone as an actor-only performance, but we do get Bill Conti back for the music. Jeff Hewlett, initial thoughts on Victory. You know, this is another one of those movies where the opening sequence is actually quite different than what the movie turns out to be. I, I wasn't sure what to expect after, you know, the movie kind of opens up with a with a guy crawling around in the weeds and, and looking to escape from this camp. Right. And then, you know, the lights come on and the dogs are barking and they they blow them away. So you're thinking, wow, this is kind of dark. So I didn't know what to expect. And the movie doesn't actually turn out to be that way for the most part. You know, there, there there are some some tough sequences, but for the most part, it doesn't seem to be as dark and violent as the, the introduction was. But initially, I I, I won't say this was uh, out of the, all the movies we talked about tonight. This is this may not be uh, this is probably the, my my least favorite of them all. Mm -hmm. But uh, overall, I, I think it's a it's a it's a good movie from from beginning to end from a from a sly standpoint. He's got a lot of really great scenes in it. Did you guys happen to notice that he got top billing in the credits? Yeah. At the beginning over Michael Caine, which is ridiculous because Michael Caine is the star of this movie. Yeah, yeah. really. 
Yeah. And Stallone was rumored to be paid at the time $1.8 million, which was, which was, was, was a lot of money. So, uh, I guess when you pay somebody that much money, um, you're going to give them top billing. Um, Jeff Ferry, um, initial thoughts on victory. Well, of the four movies we watched, this is the only one I had no recollection of at all. I couldn't even, I didn't even know what it was about. And I looked at the cover that they have online. It is horrendous. <laughs> wait, like, wait, wait. It's, it's Stallone and Michael Caine and Pele sort of arms. making a V. Um, well, I, I didn't know that until I read it. I'm like, really? They're making a V? It looks like three guys in ugly red shirts with their hands in the air. Yeah, standing like, very close together. <laughs> so I had no – I'm like, what is this movie about? I was like, is this like another movie? Is this like another strike movie? Is this like Fist 2? Like I don't understand what this is. And yeah. then I saw an international poster. And it has like Nazis and stuff in the background. I'm like, well, that would have made a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Like to maybe have an idea what it's about. And it just says like it has a very vague like tagline like victory. We've got to get victory or something. It doesn't tell you like that it's during World War Two that they're POWs. Yeah. There's going to be a soccer game. It doesn't tell you anything. This I was pleasantly surprised by this movie. Same thing of the four movies. I won't say that it's my maybe not my least favorite or of the four. It's the only one that's not. To me, it's not completely original. Mm-hmm. You've seen this movie. Yeah. It's a sports feel-good movie. They just sprinkled in some Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's uh, that's definitely a, a fair assessment. And one of the interesting things about this movie is the physical transformation that Stallone would go through for this movie. He talked in that same Roger Ebert interview from 1980 about um, the shape he got in for that movie where – Basically, Ebert says to get in shape for the role, he had to get out of shape. From Rocky's muscular build, Stallone has slimmed down to 160 pounds, more appropriate for a POW. Stallone says, my waist is down from 33 to 29 inches. I run every morning. I'm trying to look a little gaunt. I thought Rocky was tough, but I've never trained so hard. I thought soccer was a sissy sport until they kicked the ball into my stomach and I crossed the border into Austria with uh, hematobus on both hips. So, uh. Interesting little story from uh, from Stallone there about trimming down uh, to uh, to play a prisoner of war who was also uh, athletic in a different way than than Rocky was. So I don't want to get too sort of caught up in the minutia of this movie. I think we we dug deep into some of the other movies uh, and very much like Fist will sort of give this a, a high level discussion. Are there any sequences for either one of you guys that really? stand out um for me i know there is stallone's character doesn't want to play soccer he doesn't want to play by michael kane's rules and he quits the team and he's been working on a plan to escape from the camp and when the team gets assigned the game versus the germans they switch the guard assignment so all of the work that stallone has done to set up his escape has now been bungled by the movement of the guards. So Stallone works his way into the team as a means to escape. And he does escape. Um, and then he ultimately has to go back to the camp to um, arrange or or to really set into motion the bigger mission, which is to free Michael Caine and some of the other prisoners. The whole sequence where Stallone escapes and is out of the camp and then has to go back for me was a big highlight of the movie, uh, with the you know the exception of the the game at the end. Jeff Hewlett, sequences in this film that you think sort of stand out for you, or sequences that you think um, define the movie for you. 
I was actually going to hit that same sequence that you mentioned. I had it written down in some notes to talk about that. I was, I was kind of shocked when they were making him go back. I was like, wow, you know, he's got, he's kind of living this kind of a nice life now. He's, he's with these, uh, I guess he was in France, right? Mm-hmm. He escaped to Paris and he was living with this movement and uh, he seemed to be doing pretty well. And they kind of convinced him that he has to go back. But uh, another, another sequence that I, I kind of thought was in the, in the same vein was uh, near the end of the movie actually when the the team itself has a chance to escape and uh I, michael kane kind of convinces them to go on with the soccer game yeah oh this is excellent um in the locker room at halftime they have dug a hole in their locker room to uh to a ton an underground tunnel that they can escape and at this point in the game they're down what for nothing Mm-hmm. And one of the guys says to to Michael Caine, and these were all professional soccer players or football players um, in this movie. Um, they basically say, I really think we can win. And yeah, that is a great moment because eventually the whole team gets on board. And then Stallone wants to go. And Michael Caine says, well, if you go, they'll know that um, you've escaped. And and you'll put us all in jeopardy. So yeah, that that is a great a, a, a great scene that I had I had sort of forgotten to point out. Um, anything else you wanted to hit on before we move over to Jeff Ferry? Yeah, I, I remember when I was was young. I remember Pele was this big phenomenon. Oh yeah, and um, yeah, you know, they everybody made a big deal about his patented special move. <laughs> Yeah. And I guess they just had to include it in the movie. So I was kind of waiting for it to happen the whole time. So I'm going, Paley's in this movie. He doesn't have a heck of a lot of lines, but he's got to do his famous like cartwheel kick, yeah. kick thing. And sure enough, they make you wait till almost all the way at the end for that payoff. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, Pele gets benched. Um, the German team's playing a little a little hard and the refs are letting it go. And Pele gets roughed up to the point where he can't play. And then. Towards the end of the game, play, uh, Pele says, "Put me in," and uh, and scores a, a very very important goal. Um, so yeah, Pele gets to Pele it up in this movie. Jeff Ferry, um, any highlights from this movie uh, from your perspective? Well, uh, point out a couple of things. One, I did read that Pele is the one that uh, he choreographed all the soccer scenes. Oh, excellent. So I, I guess he – apparently each – there was a couple – everyone was – most of the guys were professional soccer players. And I guess they all had their own special moves. <laughs> but as only a casual soccer person, like I wouldn't have known. As soon, aside from the bicycle kick, every other move looked the same. So uh, what I really enjoyed about it was the casting. Stallone's the only American. Yeah. If, if you make this movie today, say you made a movie similar to this, it would be all Americans for some reason. And you'd have like your couple British guys thrown in there because you can't make a movie that's not completely full of Americans because <laughs> Americans were the only ones in World War II. Yeah, yeah. But like they go out of their way to, and at the very end, they go through each player and say, this guy's from Ireland, this guy's from England. And one of the scenes that I liked was uh, Michael Caine specifically requests a bunch of Eastern European players. And Max van Sydow, the German guy's like, well, you know, they don't exist. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, they're not people, they're not POWs. And he's like, well, then we're not playing. And then a couple of days later, they show up and you can tell that they were not in POW camps. They were in concentration camps. Yeah. They're all gaunt and half dead. And they're like, well, what do we do with these guys? So they never play them, but they're like, well, they can stay with us and just eat our food. So like for a movie that's pretty lighthearted, 
considering the subject matter. Like every once in a while, they hit you in the face with like, um, yeah, well, these guys have it pretty easy compared to what's going on with the <laughs> these other poor bastards are in this other place. Yeah. Like all they do is sit on the bench <laughs> mm-hmm. and like they're glad to be doing that. Yeah. But like you said, the um, basically how I would describe this movie, this movie's like it's a good watch. You sit down, it's hour and 40 minutes or whatever. The soccer game at the end, I mean, especially as an American point of view, like soccer, it is what it is. It doesn't really impress me all that much, but it was fun to watch. Like you're totally, like you guys said, you're totally on board at, at halftime. Yeah. When they're getting ready to leave. Cause what they do with you guys, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, what they do say to Stallone is if he leaves, they're going to go with him because they have to. Yeah. Yeah. It's all but or nothing. Yeah. Yeah. They don't want to leave. So it's on him to stay or go. And, you know, of course, cause it's a movie, he makes a decision to stay. But what I did like was I, at the very, very end at the, the game ends or whatever. And you know, the crowd rushes the field. That was a good alternative way to get out of the corner that they kind of painted themselves into. Yeah. And it felt organic uh, that they were able to sort of, uh, you know, work their way out of the stadium uh, with the, the mass of people who had decided to exit via the field. Yeah. Cause I was enjoying that. I was trying to figure out like, how are they going to escape at the end of this? Because legitimately if the game ends normally, they're going to walk into their thing. The Nazis yeah. are going to see a big hole in the ground and realize that something's afoot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because at the end of that sequence, you start to see Max von Sydow, um, really, um, show some humanity, um, where he's amused by the Pele trick kick and even doesn't seem that upset when they escape. So I, I thought that was an interesting sort of way to go for his character. And overall, I, I, I really enjoy Victory. And, and like we, you know, we talked about at the beginning of this movie, I think this is a really interesting period of, of Stallone's career because I don't think there's a lot of actors out there that have, really, have reached Stallone's level in terms of success um, where you can say, if you can go to anybody and say, okay, what kind of movie do you want to watch? And no matter who that person is, there's a Stallone movie for them, which I think a lot of people don't, don't expect, you know, he's done dramas, he's done comedies, um, he's done action movies. It's all there. And I think these are four films that really would play a key part in sort of satisfying any moviegoer if they have um, the open mind to look beyond their preconceived notions of who Stallone is. So I guess overall final thoughts on victory and final thoughts in general about all the movies we talked about tonight. Uh, Jeff Hewlett. Yeah. You know, victory, like I said before, I I did say it was my least favorite of the four, but that's not to say it's not a good watch. Um, I think it's definitely a good movie to sit down and take a look at, especially if you're into sports movies, because like Jeff Ferry said, it is kind of a feel good sports movie and it's got a lot of really good sequences and it's got some great acting by some great actors. It's not a hard movie to watch. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't painful or difficult at all. So, you know, definitely a good movie to watch. And, and overall, like all four movies that we talked about tonight are really good and even, I guess, slightly obscure entries into Stallone's career compared to, you know, what people mostly know him for. But all four of them are definitely worthy movies 
uh, to watch. I and mean, if you're a Stallone fan, you haven't seen these. You really kind of owe it to yourself to check them all out because they're all really good entries into his catalog. Yeah, excellent. I think with the exception of um, the straight to DVD Purgatory um, in the late 2000s or uh, in the early 2000s, late 90s, um, this is really the sort of period of Stallone's career that uh, casual fans um, really uh, don't know too much about. Um, Jeff Ferry. Yeah, I would say this is, like you said, this is a not a very well-known section of his career. Like when I brought this up to people, like, oh, what movies are you guys covering? And I mentioned these four movies. They all kind of had that look like, ugh, like that's going to be a tough one to get through. It really wasn't. If anything, I would say it was a pleasant surprise to watch these four movies again. I mean, Nighthawks I knew I enjoyed, but the other three were like, I was really expecting one or two of them to be like, well, this is going to be a chore to get through. <laughs> yes. Like, well, like, why haven't I heard of these? I guess they just they were drowned out with like they had the Rockies before him. And then shortly after, he's going to hit with Rocky three and Rambo. Mm-hmm. So like this stuff just got drowned out in the noise. Oh, totally. So like this stuff gets forgotten. But I mean, I, I can't say enough that you should. I mean, these are all extremely watchable. And like you said, three or four of them are three out of four of them are real easy to find. Like one's on YouTube. There's a couple. I think one's on Netflix. One's on Amazon. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't recommend all of them highly enough. Yeah, yeah. So great. Hey, guys, I, I really want to say that this discussion was as great as I thought it was going to be. Um, I knew that this was going to be an episode that I was really interested in, in, in doing. And I've really enjoyed what we've accomplished thus far on the Slycast. And um, I look forward to our future episodes. And next installment, we will be looking at much like we looked at Rocky 1 and Rocky 2 together, we are going to look at First Blood and Rambo First Blood Part 2. So if you want to do some uh, homework, if you will, before the next episode, those are the two movies that we're going to be talking about. And I also just want to um, give you a heads up on where you could really interact with us best online. Um, over on Twitter, we have an account that is at the Slycast. And through there, you can find uh, our personal accounts. And uh, we love interacting with people. If you listen to us on iTunes, uh, feel free to rate us and leave a review. I really enjoyed reading uh, some of the reviews that we've had. And, uh, you know, uh, it's great to see all of the, uh, the five-star ratings that we've gotten. And it's, it's really good to see that people are responding to this show because we love doing it. And it's great to... Uh, to see that people love listening to it. So um, with that, any any final thoughts for the night, uh, Jeff Hewlett? Um, not really much more to add. Just you know, a, a big thanks to all the listeners. Just like you said, I think we've been getting uh, a lot more reaction to this show than we had expected. And you know, big big thanks to to all the other people on Twitter that have been retweeting us and and promoting the show. I, I think it's it's really given us a really good perspective on on you know what we're doing here and i think we we all feel really good about about what we've done so far and are looking forward to the future thanks to to all of this great feedback excellent excellent and uh, jeff ferry oh it's uh, same thing uh, i've heard a lot on facebook and from the the few uh people in the real world uh it'd be great if people went on there leave some more uh, itunes reviews they are pretty funny to read because <laughs> god knows i've left enough on other ones yeah uh, you know, thank both of you guys for being on there, mostly for uh, Craig for keeping us on topic as much as possible. I know me and Hewlett like to wander off down 
We do some it's, trails sometimes. It's fun. They're they're <laughs> fun little uh you know trails that we go down. So uh, but thank you for that. Um, and I guess that brings us to the end of another episode of Slycast, the Sylvester Stallone fan podcast. And we will see you next time.